0: It's really good to be back home. Um, I had a lovely time in New Zealand. It was nice and warm and sunny. Uh, The people were very friendly, but there's no place like home. Um, Home is where the heart is, as the saying goes, and my heart is very much in Hillhead. It's a place I love to come home to. Our call to worship is from the second letter of St. Peter, which I'm sure you all know off by heart, but uh, this is part of what he wrote to those he was contacting. We have not depended on made-up stories in making known to you the mighty coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. With our own eyes, we saw his greatness. We were there when he was given honor and glory by God the Father, when the voice came to him from the supreme glory, saying, This is my own dear Son, with whom I am pleased. We ourselves heard his voice coming from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we are even more confident of the message proclaimed by the prophets. You will do well to pay attention to it because it is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the light of the morning star shines in your hearts. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. God of the ordinary, ordinary time, ordinary places, ordinary people, we praise and thank you for the ordinary things that make our lives possible, air to breathe, food to eat, water to drink, places to live. We praise and thank you for the ordinary people who make our lives achievable, people who grow and make our food, people who weave fabric and make clothes, people who work in shops and who drive buses and trains. People who build houses and supply utilities. We praise and thank you for the people, places, and things that for us are special. For family members who love us and care for us. For homes. Filled with precious possessions, for favourite toys, for photographs, for books and music, for happy memories, and for eagerly anticipated plans. God of the ordinary. You see each of us as special. You love us. And you accept us. And you long for us to achieve our full potential. So help us as we try to worship you. To listen to your voice. To be alert to your spirit's gentle touch as you encourage us and maybe change us for we pray in jesus name amen
1: our old testament reading this morning is from exodus chapter 24 starting at verse 12 the lord said to moses come up to me on the mountain and stay here And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Then from the New Testament, Matthew chapter 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Amen. Many, many
0: years ago now, I remember somebody telling me that in Australia, people celebrate Christmas in August. And their justification for this was that they'd been watching either Neighbours or Home or Away, and Away, I'm not sure which, during our summer and had seen the Christmas episode. Oh dear, I have to admit, I laughed aloud at this misunderstanding about how TV schedules work and total ignorance of the church calendar. And yet, last Sunday, at the church I attended in Auckland, New Zealand, the minister had chosen to mark Epiphany, the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles, symbolised by the visit of the Magi, recorded in Matthew's Gospel. At the start of her sermon, she noted the lateness, and she made that inevitable joke about Baptist autonomy and not being banned by the liturgical year and all that sort of stuff, before she led us through a very helpful, I thought, exploration of the story, And I'll return to some of that a little bit later on, because I think it's a helpful framework for us as we look at today's example of an epiphany story. Because the story of the transfiguration recorded in the three synoptic gospels is indeed an example of what is known as an epiphany. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that the word epiphany has become very popular recently. And it's quite often used carelessly about the most trivial of insights. Oh, that was a bit of an epiphany moment for you, wasn't it, when you realised that McDonald's beef burgers were like this? Well, I'm not really sure that's an epiphany, but it might be a, a penny-dropping moment. The word literally comes from the Greek uh, for shine upon or appear upon. And it does refer to those kind of penny-dropping moments, those aha moments when you suddenly get a new insight or understanding that significantly shift our perception. It could be, then, said, described as an epiphany, when that concept with which we've really struggled and wrestled suddenly makes sense. Whether it is multivariate integral calculus i'm sure you all can do that Uh, physics quantum variety especially philosophy or theology suddenly something makes sense that you didn't understand before that's kind of an epiphany moment it's that kind of level of shift in understanding but in a faith context it's more than just a eureka moment though it probably has those qualities it has an explicitly spiritual or divine aspect to it, which may or may not be so easy to explain or describe. It may not, in fact, involve new knowledge, but rather a sudden glimpse or insight into how what we already know makes sense and informs and shapes our lives here and now. It's fine to say that we think God is outside of time and kind of get that in our head, but maybe we suddenly go, so that's what that means then, here and now. That's kind of the quality of an epiphany moment. Perhaps it's a moment when the veil between the physical and the spiritual is lifted, when the temporal and eternal become as one, when the not yet invades the now. And sometimes epiphanies are like huge paradigm shifts leading to wholesale changes in the lives of those who experience them. But they can be less dramatic and equally valid leading to small changes in worldview, attitudes or actions. The scriptural record reports many examples of what might be termed epiphanies. And commentators identify a number of literary devices which hint at such a meaning based on an understanding of the ancient worldview. In an ancient worldview, we had a flat earth, a triple-decker universe with heaven up there and then earth and then whatever was under the earth, and a keen sense of divine imminence and involvement. So most of the epiphany accounts involve people going up a mountain as was the case with Moses and his companions in our Old Testament reading and indeed Elijah in that very well-loved re- um, story of his encounter with God when he was pretty much suicidal. The ascent symbolizes not just withdrawing from the everyday and what's sometimes referred to as the profane but also physically coming closer to the heavenly realm. In a flat earth view, going up must be closer to heaven and therefore closer to God. The second significant factor is the descent of or hiddenness within a cloud. Now, we kind of understand clouds on mountains as a meteorological phenomenon all to do with air pressure and temperature inversions and other weird and wonderful things. Or perhaps we don't, but we just kind of know that they happen. But for them, it signified the presence of God. Think of the um, guiding cloud in the Exodus story. In fact, more than just the presence of God, they symbolize the Shekinah presence of God, the glory of God that could be invoked by two or three people committed to prayer. You know that bit in the Bible says where Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them? That's a kind of hint of invoking the Shekinah presence of God. So you go up a mountain, you have a cloud as a descent, as a sign of, of God's presence. And then the third factor, and the most mysterious, is the voice, often heard as thunder by those who are not part of the encounter with the divine. The stories of Moses, the story of Elijah, the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration and even the conversion of Saul of Tarsus have this factor of a voice speaking in them. So if you know how to read the stories, how, to, how the symbolism works, the mountain, the cloud and the voice are things that point you to the idea that this is a very special divine encounter I'm telling us that because I think it helps us to recognise that those who first read Matthew's Gospel would immediately have grasped that this was this kind of encounter. The mountain, the cloud and the voice said beyond any doubt this is a divine thing. The unfolding events in Matthew's Gospel have hinted at Jesus as a new Moses shown in his commitment to fulfilment of the law which we've been exploring over the last few weeks It explains his rabbinic teaching and, in fact, the examples of his thalmatagic that means wonder-working, but I just like big words now and then, powers, that's his superpower, if you like, doing miracles. Now the readers are giving their strongest hint yet of the divine origin and nature of this northern wonder-working preacher. The epiphany experienced by Peter, James, and John is offered to the readers or hearers. They may not physically go up the mountain, enter the cloud, or hear the voice, but there is potential for those who hear or read this account to have their own eureka or aha moment as things fall into place in their understanding about who and what this man Jesus really is. The epiphany story of the Magi, of course, doesn't have a mountain, and it doesn't have a cloud, and in fact, it doesn't have a voice. It uses other mysterious devices, the device of a dream, which reflects an Eastern culture, but it also gives us a hint of that Old Testament story of Joseph who had dreams and interpreted dreams, which is actually quite important in this idea of the Moses motif. If Jesus is the the new Moses, the fulfillment of Moses then this is a kind of Joseph element of the dreams and interpretation. I think it is useful to to allow what I heard last week um, in New Zealand about the epiphany story to give us a bit of a framework to look at the transfiguration story as an example of an epiphany, a close encounter of the spiritual kind. The story of the Magi can be divided into three stages the expectant journey to Jerusalem, the unexpected encounters in Jerusalem and its surroundings, and then the return journey via a different road, or route, as they kept saying last week, route, with a New Zealand accent, comes out as route. Put very briefly, then, the Magi had prepared carefully for their journey to Jerusalem. They'd researched the Jewish scriptures They'd selected what they thought were the right gifts, and they had set off. They thought they knew what they were going to find, and they'd made their plans accordingly. But when they arrived in Jerusalem, nothing was as they imagined. And they found themselves not in a palace in Jerusalem, but rather in a peasant home in Bethlehem. And their carefully chosen gifts actually seemed rather ridiculous and impractical, even if they carried huge symbolic significance. And then, after their religiously significant dreams, they chose a different route home, potentially symbolising a new direction in their own lives, since they had certainly been affected by what they had experienced and shared. Whether or not it had that aha sense of an epiphany, for them, we're not told. But they were different men from those who had set off. They had been changed by their experience. And so I wondered whether this scheme of an expectant journey, surprise events, and return on a different path might apply to the transfiguration. And if so, might it give us a model to explore or understand our own religious experiences, irrespective of their enormity or lack of it. We know from the Gospel accounts that Jesus had a huge number of disciples, people who had chosen to identify with his teaching. It's recorded that 70 or 72 of them were sent out at one point on a prototype mission. And within that 72 or more, were the twelve, an ill-assorted collection of men who represented the diversity of human life and experience and who were privileged to share a closer relationship with Jesus, including some private teaching sessions. And then there were the three, Peter, James and John, who seemed to have been with Jesus pretty much all of the time and shared some of his most intimate moments. It was these three chosen from the 70 or more who would have been around at the time who went up with Jesus up the mountain. Sorry, I didn't say that quite right. It was these three chosen from the 70 or more who were there at the time who went with Jesus up the mountain. There is a clear parallel with the story in Exodus. If we'd read a bit before that, um, there was three people who went with Moses out of around 70 elders at the foot of the mountain. So there's a clear parallel in the story there. But what I wonder is what were the expectations of those disciples as they went up the mountain? What were they talking about as they walked up? What did they think that Jesus might be going to share with them? What did they expect? Probably they did expect it to have some kind of religious significance because they were going up the mountain. Perhaps they thought this was going to be a time of prayer, seeking God's wisdom or guidance for what came ahead of them. It would have taken them quite a while to get up the mountain. They would have had time to think, time to chat. Probably they would have laughed together and Even possibly they would have sung, sung psalms or sung songs. There was nothing especially unusual about this climb. They'd probably done this one or similar ones before, so they thought they knew what was going to happen. Go up the mountain, whatever happens, happens. Come back down, get on with life. Reaching the top of the mountain, tired, Possibly thirsty, possibly even dehydrated, the men stop. Some commentators and some people try to rationalise what happens next as a mass hallucination. That the exertion of the climb triggers a vision. Even if that is true, and I'm not entirely convinced by such arguments, it doesn't alter the fact that the events are unexpected and their impact enormous. Trying to explain away the how of what happens, or to assign it to the category of myth, that is a religiously meaningful fiction, doesn't achieve very much. and actually evades the fact that for Peter and the others, this was incredibly significant. Quite how they knew it was Moses and Elijah is not that important. I'm guessing they weren't wearing name badges saying, I'm Moses and I'm Elijah, but somehow they knew that's who it was. The precise mechanism of Jesus' metamorphosis, the Greek origins of the word transfiguration, to glowing white garments and shining visage need not occupy our thoughts. How it happened is not the point. The key to it is that it wasn't what they expected. They'd gone up a mountain thinking they knew what was going to happen, but having got there, everything they anticipated was overturned. Small wonder, really, that they were terrified. Small wonder that Peter, the only one who seems capable of speech, starts blabbering a load of nonsense about building shelters or tabernacles, quite possibly shrines, One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. If we get too caught up in trying to rationalize or demythologise the story, we miss its impact for those who were there. There's no doubt that this event was significant for Peter, and no doubt that he thought it was real. We've got documentary evidence to prove that, And that was the words with which we began our service today. Peter went on to say, this isn't a made-up story. This is what really happened. Whatever we might think, Peter believed it was real. And so, presumably, did James and John, the sons of thunder, silenced by the thundering voice of God, in a cloud up a mountain. So they thought they knew what was going to happen. But what happened was not at all what they might have thought. As they start their journey downwards, still reeling from what they've seen and felt and shared and heard, Jesus says in that way that Jesus does, don't tell anybody about this. Why? Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? The traditional explanation is what is called the messianic secret, that Jesus regularly instructed those he healed or with whom he had special encounters to tell no one because the time was not yet right for his identity to be revealed and that would certainly make sense in the context of what these men saw. I found myself wondering if maybe there is a simpler, more pastoral and practical reason that we can have alongside this one. Might it be the case that these bewildered and, in at least one case, blabbering men need some time and space to process what's happened? They're not the same men who went up the mountain, at least not in respect to their relationship with Jesus, but they're not yet able to understand or articulate how they've been changed. Back at ground level, nothing has changed. The other disciples have been waiting patiently and have been having a bit of a tough time, failing miserably in their attempts to heal a man of what we would probably term epilepsy. one of the risks of these epiphanies or religious experiences is that those who experience can't contain their excitement and they just go back and blab it all out to everybody else and overwhelm them. But for everybody else, life has just been going on as normal with all its problems and all its questions and all its struggles. But that coming back to earth... That coming down the mountain to the ordinary is inevitable. The mountaintop experience needs to be grounded in real life. The aha moment that sets their feet on a different path has to be worked out in the real world. Because whilst everything has changed, nothing's changed. Sickness and poverty and injustice are still there. The challenge for these three men is to work out how what they've experienced shapes their continued discipleship as flawed human beings in a disordered world. I wonder if you, like me, can see a bit of a pattern here. The expected journey The unexpected experience and the transformed journey into the everyday, and how that might help us to think about our own life and faith, our own attitudes and expectations, even or perhaps especially in relationship to our worship together. If we're honest, we like church to be predictable and safe. We like the preacher to encourage us more than she challenges us. Well, I prefer to be encouraged than challenged, even if I possibly don't always get the balance that way around myself. And if we're honest, we come knowing what to expect. And mostly, what we expect is what we experience. But just now and then, maybe God breaks in in a way that surprises us. It might be a word or a phrase. It might be a picture or an image. A piece of music that pierces our souls and touches our hearts. Something that blows our minds as suddenly we have our own epiphany. Or actually, are we so closed down So logical, so scientific, so cynical, so certain that we refuse to entertain the possibility, however tiny, of transformation, of transfiguration. Do we just occasionally... Find ourselves challenged and changed, our feet set on a different path, as that impossible concept suddenly makes sense, or that new insight strikes us, and if so, what are we going to do with it? As we come down from our personal mountaintop, back to the everyday world we all inhabit, what are we going to do with those new understandings, those new insights? Those new feelings. Well, to be honest, tell no one is probably my default setting. But I'd like to hope that like Moses and like the Elijah and like the disciples, the changes actually can't be hidden. That the glow of that encounter, however faint, however fleeting, will be evident to those around us that the new knowledge will shape thinking of me and of us as we continue to follow Jesus and learn more about who he is. Today, in a sense, we have come apart with Jesus' upper mountain, open to the possibility of an encounter with God, indeed probably seeking an encounter with God. How that has played out will be as unique as each one of us. But maybe, just maybe, somebody has had a tiny ha moment. Maybe, just maybe, some new ideas have been planted or some old understandings refreshed. And as we go back to the normality of life, with all its questions and complications, that we do so changed, if only in the smallest way. On a road that is different, be it ever so subtly, from the one by which we came. May the Christ who revealed to three frightened men on a mountaintop also be the one who accompanies us on our own journeys, wherever they may lead us.
2: Amen. Let us come to God in prayer. God, we thank you that you come to us on the mountaintops of our lives transfiguring our lives through your holy presence shining into the dark places and transforming our souls we pray that you will renew in us and in all people a sense of mystery which restores the wonder of life but we understand that our lives cannot be lived exclusively on the mountaintops Lead us on from the heights of your presence that we may find you more in ordinary life. Where people become cynical and despair. Where people suffer and lose sight of anything that is good. Where people look at each other and do not see you. Lord, this week we pray especially for those whose lives are changing more quickly than they can recognise. We pray for Althea as she spends another month in Balmano House and that it starts to feel more like home. We pray for those whose change comes with violence. The people of Ukraine at a time of fear and uncertainty where things seem to change every second that a lasting peace may come we pray for those caught up in the mass stabbings in Kunming in China and for all those whose lives are touched by violence and by suffering and for those situations known to each of us where your transforming presence is so desperately needed Place the light of your presence around us all, that we may see each other transfigured by your love for us. Amen.
0: May the Lord who meets us on the mountain walk with us in the valley. May the Lord whose glory shines like the sun illuminate our darkest moments. And may our encounters with God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, lead us into new adventures in faith, now and always.